Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, we love Burger King grilled dogs. They're made with 100% beef and they're 100%. Mm. They're so good, they make us want to sing like... I can't believe it. Burger King made a grilled dog. This July 4th weekend, put down the tongs, step away from the grill, and get to Burger King to try a grilled dog for just a dollar. Ask for the dollar grilled dog deal and get a classic grilled dog for a dollar. Only at Burger King. At participating restaurants on July 2nd and 3rd, limit five per transaction while supplies last. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm Daniel LaRue, your host, and thank you so much for listening to our first episode. Going to start out with a strong show, two interview guests. The first is my colleague from Real GM, Jonathan Charks, and we're going to talk about the upcoming season for about 28 minutes. After that, I'm going to bring on Arturo Galetti. He's one of my favorite basketball minds, and he's writing for his new site, Box Score Geeks, and you might know him from The Wages of Wins. He's a fa- fabulous writer and a really amazing basketball mind, and we talk for 55 minutes. First up is my interview with Jonathan Charks of Real GM. Thank you so much for listening and hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, yeah, no problem. You just wrote a piece, a really strong piece, on the Nets and kind of their place in the Eastern Conference and how they were built. I wanted to see if you could give, kind of give the listeners a sense of what you, where you see the Nets in the scope of the Eastern Conference. Well, I think I'm a lot higher on the Nets than most people. And I think a lot of that, like, a lot of the publicity about KG and Pierce kind of got the headlines, and they're really old. But their bench is just crazy stacked, too, with getting Kirilenko and re-signing Blatch. And so they really – they've got guys at every position. Like, I look at, like, the Pacers compared to the Nets. And if you go one through five, the only spot the Pacers have is Paul George at wing. And then if you go to the Pacers bench, they got off a list with the Nets bench. That, that's a bench right there. That's two or three guys who can start for most teams today. The other benefit of having a bench like they do is that not only can they handle injuries in a different way, but when a playoff rotation tightens and gets down to, let's say, eight, maybe nine players, they have a really strong – they're not losing a lot when you cut it down. They're actually gaining. Yeah, I mean, Kirilenko and Blatch, I feel like, could probably be a 500 team as it's to be on the floor on a, you know, an average team. And they're, 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 probably the, I think they're probably the best team in the NBA, if I, if I had to guess right now, looking at the rosters. So where do you see them in relation, let's say, to the other the other big teams, Miami, Indiana, and Chicago, in whatever order you have them in? I think it should be really tight with all four teams. This should be the probably the best year in the East since I can remember, really. Like I think for the first time we just have two really good second round series. I think all four teams are pretty evenly distributed, and it'll come down to matchups, I would assume, and health in June and July, or in May. I guess May and June. 
And also we could see these are all teams that, that can defend well. Whether they actually will is going to be a different question. And that could mean that they'll be better on the road. And so home court advantage might not mean as much as it does in other series. Possibly. But I think you saw with Miami last year, I don't think they would have won if they had Game 7 in Indiana or Game 7 in San Antonio. So that was about, I think that was a series where it really came down to home court, I guess. I mean, that was a good point. After. Did you have a sense at this at this point about how the bottom half of the conference, it seems like everybody has their own favorite and least favorite teams that are kind of in that mix? Um, yeah, not really. It should be a pretty, but yeah, I guess besides Philadelphia, obviously, I think it's pretty much from like 6 to 13, it seems pretty condensed. One team I'm not as big on is Boston. I feel like Boston is getting a little overrated right now in terms of being a legitimate contender if Rondo can't come back. Yeah, I think that I'm not sold on Avery Bradley being a primary ball handler. I love him defending point guards. I actually talked with Kent Bazemore um, at, at Warriors Media Day. I asked him because people had been talking about that Iggy had done the best job defending Stephen Curry. I asked B- Bazemore, and he said he thought Avery Bradley, which I thought was interesting. But he can't run an offense. Yeah, he's a, he's a defensive special. I, I've watched Avery because I went to UT when he was there. So I've watched him pretty closely for a long time. And, yeah, he's an off-ball guard. He's not a guy who's going to run the offense, create shots for others, control tempo. That's not only his game. I don't think it'll ever change, really, at this point. Yeah, and, and the other thing with Boston is when you have a coach that's on a long contract and you have a GM that's not going to get fired, they don't have the urgency to win where a team like Washington with Grunfeld, who is definitely on his last legs if the team doesn't do well, and Whitman as well. And so there's an urgency with those kind of teams that if things don't go well for Boston, it's no harm, no foul. Yeah, that, that's true for sure. That's definitely, yeah, Washington is on a week-to-week basis right now, I'm guessing. If they start 0-5, who knows what's going to happen? Yeah, and I mean, that that's the justification in many ways for the Gortat trade, as much as it was a, a it's a short-sighted deal in the sense that he can walk with no ramifications if he wants to at the end of the year, but they are, they're in a, and they lost a first-round pick in, in the deal, presumably, but at the same time, they needed to get a contribution from somebody because the, their big man bench is just, has been disastrous. Yeah, I think what they did, I don't think he'll walk, but they're definitely in a spot where about to pay him a lot of money next offseason. Like, yeah, they, they've gone all on this core, and they're going to have to pay him a lot of money, basically. And because, yeah, they've, they've missed on so many bigs. And they, they've had three top three picks, and they have no young big men. It's really remarkable what it is. I know, I know from, I know from the pieces that you've written, and I think we're in pretty firm agreement on this about our affection for Andre Drummond. Do you see the, do you see the Pistons making some noise in the bottom half of the conference? That'll be interesting. I mean, before the preseason started, I was really big on the Pistons, and I was watching a few of their games, and this whole, like, Josh Smith shooting jumpers thing could be a serious problem. Same with Greg Monroe, too. Like, they'll be terribly watching very close to start the season and see what happens to them. I mean, I think in theory, yes, they should be a really strong team on the front court, but that shooting thing and Josh Smith shooting is going to be a serious storyline, obviously, to start the season. I think the big question for them is going to be how they balance their rotation, because if they play most of the time with two of Josh Smith, Greg Monroe, and Andre Drummond on the floor and not three, they'll do, I think they'll do really well. And defensively, I think it could work. The, the question is whether Mo Cheeks has enough, I guess you could say, 
power or however you want to say it to to have ramifications for guys like Josh Smith and Brandon Jennings takes bad shots from as well to really get them on their offensive game. Yeah, and I, I'd like to see them run some a little like just run some clever systems, run a cohesive unit that gets the offense more in the half court and not too much isolation basketball too. I think a guy big for them could be Kyle Singler. That's a guy who could really help them out with spreading the floor and not being awful at defense. A good mix of a three and D kind of guy. Yeah, and if they can get contributions from one or two or maybe even three of the swingman guys they have, they have a bunch of guys that are kind of interesting but haven't shown a whole ton. If they can get one or two of those guys to really play well, not only does it give them a five-man unit to close games, but it gives them a lot more consistency from game to game offensively. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of guys who, are, yeah, we want to see what they can do. Uh, the Tommy, what, what he can bring. He's only 25, so maybe – I thought he was older than that, but okay. Call Little Pope, is he your rookie? What's he going to do? Will Bynum, is Conchante stay healthy? Yeah, they're, they're, they're one of the most interesting teams for sure to start the season at the Pistons. When I wrote, I do a season tiers piece every time, and the idea of it is to try to put teams where they'll finish it somewhere in that group, but that group can change around. And the team that I had the most trouble with in either conference was Toronto. What do you think that they're going to do this year? When I was watching them in the preseason, what jumped out at me is the lack of shooting. Because they got DeRozan, Rudy Gay, Amir Johnson, Jonas. So there's no three-point shooting on their starting lineup. Their best shooter is Kyle Lowry, probably. And he's got he's got to run the points and not take a lot of shots. So the talent's there, but I'm just not sure it really fits together very well. And I could see Masai Ujiri making some moves pretty quickly if it doesn't. If he's a guy on a long-term perspective, they're not really in a win. I guess Dwayne Casey's in a win-now mode, but Masai is not. So that'll be something with a different kind of different path where they're going to go. Yeah, it was last year's team, surprisingly enough, there's the lineup that it looks like they're going to start this year did really well defensively, and Casey has a rep for being a very good defensive coach. It'll be interesting to see if that carries over and if they'll have the lineup together long enough because Ujiri, I mean, whenever you see in any sport, you see a, a prominent GM come in, especially when they're replacing somebody who held talent in the way that Colangelo did, you see a lot of moves, and we, or maybe not a lot of moves, but impactful moves until they get the roster that they want. And it'll be fascinating to see what the timeline for that is beyond Bargnani. Yeah. And I think they'll have to make their bones on defense, like defend and get on the fat, get on the transition where Gay and DeRozan can kind of do what they need to do without defense clogging up the lane. Cause they play half court to half court basketball. They also have a hard time spacing the floor, I think to win a lot of games. So if they can defend, yeah, they kind of defend and get out as much as possible. I think is the key for them. Agreed. Uh, in terms of the Western Conference, there's a lot of division in terms of what group counts as the truly elite teams and whether teams like the Warriors count in and there are a bunch of other ones. Do you have a, do you have a real sense yourself on how kind of the hierarchy is going to work in the West? Um, I guess that is like the $64 million question or whatever. The team, I, I would say to me the top four are, if healthy, would be the Spurs, Clippers, Rockets, and Thunder. And to me, like really the Rockets and the Thunder, in the big picture, they've got two on, in their mid-20s superstars in the prime of their career going. Those two teams are going to be hard to beat, I think, for anybody else to get out of the Western Conference, to beat Harden and Howard and then beat Durant and Westbrook. That's going to be tough. Yeah. I've had a theory for a couple of years that the team with two out of the three best players more often than not wins playoff series. And that'll be a very interesting question in terms of this Western Conference, because so many of these teams have really strong top twos. Yeah, yeah, that's why that's kind of why I think the four is the, 
out of those four, it was Griffin and Paul in L.A., and then Parker and Duncan in San Antonio. And I think the Grizzlies and the Warriors are both really good teams. But, yeah, there's not as much the superstar, superstar talent, which a seven-game series can kind of expose. I think the difference in some ways between the West and the East, I think they'll both have fabulous second and third round, like conference finals in the round before that, because they each have strong top fours. I think the difference with the West is that the teams that are presumably going to be in the bottom half of the playoffs are all going to be teams that could be interesting in the playoffs. It's just that they don't have the aggregate level of quality. A team like the Warriors has risk of injury, and Memphis has their flaws. That I think they could be a really tough out for certain teams in the playoffs. For sure. I mean, I think that, that the real barrier, I think, is really six and seven. That's the drop-off in the West after this, those top six teams. And whether seven or eight can make a run at one and two, I don't know about that. Are there any teams that you think people are, beyond the ones that we've already discussed, that people in general are either too high or too low on going into the year? Let's start with the West. Um, I, I'm, I'm bigger on New Orleans than most people. But I think Anthony Davis is ready to really kind of go off this year. And if he can play as a five with Anderson at the four, I think that's your, your tough lower seed team is New Orleans probably. I'm, I'm higher than most people, I would, I would say. I like I, I like some of the pieces that they have. I, I love Anthony Davis, big fan of him, like Ryan Anderson. The question for them is going to be whether they can couple their high-end talent with a couple of guys coming on in terms of depth, whether that be in the starting lineup or coming off the bench, depending on how they use guys like Tyreek. Yeah, one guy I think would be good for them is Anthony Moreau in terms of just hitting threes, getting out in transition and spacing the floor. He's a guy who can get a lot of, get a lot of easy shots playing with those dudes, and he can, he'll knock yeah. on his shots for sure. And unless Austin Rivers got way better, replacing his minutes with Anthony Morrow minutes could be a big benefit for them. Yeah. I know that you said that you've been following the Mavericks in the preseason. How do you think that things are going to work out for them? Right before this interview, actually, the Mavs um, let go of their new GM, Jerson Roses, after a three-month this could, I don't know, but it doesn't sound good. Because the Mavs made a bunch of moves in the offseason, and they hired a GM in late July, which makes not a lot of sense, really, to hire a new general manager after you've already made all your decisions, spent all your cap space, whatever. And he lasts three months, and he's fired the day, of, the, day the season starts. So that's kind of what's going on in Dallas in terms of the upper management, the chaos of it. And with the Mavs, they got some pieces. Will they fit together? It's they're on kind of a razor's edge where, like, a few things go right, the ball gets rolling the right way, but a few things go wrong, the ball can roll off the ledge really fast. I have trouble with them because I, I ridiculed their offseason because I just thought it was a poor use of the resources they have. But at the same point, they have a really good coach in Rick Carlisle. They have Dirk Nowitzki, who, as long as he hasn't fallen off, should still be a major contributor. And they didn't get worse in that sense they just added money that i thought was bad long-term money so i could definitely see the wheels fall off but i could also see them being relevant which would i could see them i think i had them ending up eighth in the playoffs and there they could go a lot of different directions yeah i i think well, i had to be one of those top eight things i had them at seven or eight but the mavs got like seven or eight guys and they also stay healthy at the same time and they're, they're getting kind of old too because like besides dirk you got like mary and vince carter probably your two and three best players. They're, they're your best athletes, and they're both over 35, which isn't a great sign, probably. And you've got yeah, Calvin and Ellis. And Dallenbear's, Dallenbear's no spring chicken either. I mean, I think he's in his early early to mid-30s. Yeah, and he's, like, a big loss for the Mavs, actually, is Brandon Wright. He's really come on in the last two and he's out right now. Without him, they've got no big man who can really fish the pick and roll or be a threat on offense. 
And so he's actually a guy, if he's out for long for a ton of maps, could be in trouble. Yeah, I'm a, I've been a big fan of him. I've been covering the Warriors for a long time, and he's just a he's just a quality a quality all around player. So since since we're real GM, I thought it'd be a good idea to end with a little bit of a discussion of the best and worst moves of the off season in terms of what you anything you saw that was a really spectacular move, big or small, or anything that was just a disaster. Well, I mean, I guess obviously, I mean, off the top of my head, the big move was signing Dwight Howard. If you can get Dwight Howard for nothing, that's a pretty major coup for your franchise in terms of the best moves of the offseason. Um, in terms of, I guess, lower-key moves that could pay off, I like what, uh, I guess, Utah. Because I think, really, one offseason is too short a window to very view the plan of a franchise. But what Utah's doing, variously building young pieces together, I think will pay off in a few years. And a lot of these more short-term moves will not. And even though I thought that they gave they gave a little bit too much to favors without waiting for restricted free agency, at the same time, they're in a situation where the worst case scenario is they end up doing what Ujiri did with Nene, and they can move him easily if the fit doesn't work out perfectly with, with Cantor. Yeah, I guess that's the question for Utah, whether so they can be a two-post offense or whether they're better off going four out like everybody else is doing. Because right now with Cantor and favors, yeah, me, I would roll my ass to big man as long as I possibly could. And with favors, like, you look at, like, a team like Dallas. This offseason, Dallas has nothing going on for their cap space. If I was the Mavs, I would sign favors to a max deal because why not? I have nothing to lose. And that's the exact situation. You could argue the same logic, even though there was more injury risk for the Warriors extending Bogut and a few other a few other moves of that. And it'll be interesting to see what happens with Gordon Hayward because today is the last day, and I, at least as of now, I haven't heard anything about him signing or not signing. Yeah, that's yeah. I think he's still in the air. But yeah, with big men, you just never like with with the Mavs. Go back to them with Tyson Chandler. You got kind of like that walk. You might be waiting a decade to get another good center in your franchise again because there's not very many of those guys. And when you have one of them, like, he has all the cards, basically. Because if the Warriors didn't get built, what would they have done if he had left? They also wouldn't have had the cap space to go after to go after a, a similar quality guy. They would have had a very limited amount of time to use a trade exception. But when you're using a trade exception, you're either getting a guy who another team doesn't want or you're giving up talent on the other end and using the trade exception just to, to balance the deal financially. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the thing with any free agency. When you get outside the top-tier guys – you're getting guys other teams don't don't really need anymore. Like last year for me in Dallas, watching Cayman, Mayo, and Carlos was kind of an eye-opening experience. Because, like, I, I'd watched them play for a long time, obviously. When you watch them play every night, it's like, oh, this is why his team let him walk being a top-five pick. Well, that makes a lot more sense now. Like, I'm seeing in L.A. all these, like, Chris Cayman articles. Oh, yeah, you can play on the post. You can score. Like, just wait. Wait two months. Watch Chris Cayman play every night. And then – We'll see why on the third team in three seasons. The other thing that's interesting to me with Cayman on the Lakers is that I had kind of fallen in love with the idea of Powell playing more five. I think that that's his best position in terms of spacing on the floor and defensively as his, he's slowing down a little bit. And to to add in Cayman and to not add any real stretch for us, they have Hill who presumably they can kind of bounce the four or five between them a little bit, but to not add a reliable, even kind of bargain basement guy beyond the Ryan Kelly kind of second-round picks of the world was really surprising to me. Well, they're going to make Sean Williams their stretch four, I think. I think that's the plan right now in L.A. And they're the team I'm also really down on. I guess going back to your other question, the Lakers' prime lineup is Steve Nash, Steve Blake, Nick Young, Sean Williams, Pau Gasol. 
And I love Powell and Nash. They're great players. But without Poets left, 31 team, 35 tops. I mean, Nick Young and Steve Blake starting at the 2-3, and three, like, I don't know about that. They're so susceptible to injury because they're so insanely top-heavy without quality depth in any way. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's nice for getting Xavier, Henry, and Wesley Johnson chance, like a second chance home now, the Lakers. That's, how, that's where they're at. I mean, those guys are still pretty young. Maybe they can turn it yeah, around. Yeah. I don't know. It's not impossible, you, but obviously. Yeah, when you're, in a, when you're in a situation where you're in a desirable market, one of the best things you can do is a good buy low on a guy who, at least at some time, looked like they had the talent to be an NBA player. It's a similar idea, but I think to a much better scale with guys like Beasley and Greg Oden on Miami. But you take those risks when you have the flexibility to. Yeah, that, that is kind of funny contrast, because it's such a higher upside with the Miami signings. Like, L.A. signing guys who could be 3 and D role players if everything breaks their way. And Miami signing guys who could, you know, Greg Oden. What do you mean Greg Oden, by the way, if you had to guess? What's your guess on that? I think that he, they're going to do a good job of making sure that if he is capable of playing minutes, those minutes will come late in the season. I think that he – I wouldn't be surprised if he plays a very small amount of minutes during the regular season, but then contributes, I would say, somewhere between 5 and 10 in the postseason, and that those five and ten are incredibly important because of Miami's depth issues at center. Yeah, I mean, they gotta like they gotta guard Brooke Lopez and Roy Hibbert somehow. Like I remember that Pacers series, Hibbert put up like twenty points a game. He's not exactly Kareem Abdul-Jabbar out there, but Brooke Lopez against Chris Bosh—that's I don't know if it's gonna work. Well, yeah, and I'm as when he was a draft prospect, I was higher on Odin than. Any, I think any big man prospect that I can think of, because I saw him play in person, I was at the Final Four that he played in, which was just incredible. And I should have, uh, we, all, we all should have seen the possibility of injury risk just because of a guy who's his size and with his, kind of his history. But his talent level, even if you're reducing the minutes, if he can get even close to that kind of production in terms of per minute, he could be a, he could decide the championship. Yeah, I mean, I think realistically, if Greg Oden could give them 25 minutes a night, they're going to be hard to beat. But at this point, obviously, same with Andrew Bynum. Like, it's just, just a good luck. It's just whatever they can get to the bonus. And, and on those notes, the other guy who I never thought could be a potential guy to swing the championship in a season like this is the possibility of a Mecca Okafor. If Phoenix lets him go with some sort of buyout, which I could see him doing because the money that he would lose if he got bought out around the deadline isn't that much. And the possibility of he could go to the Clippers, he could go to the Heat, he could go pretty much, he could go anywhere he wanted and play meaningful minutes, depending on how many, depending on where he went. Yeah, but what's he have a herniated disc in his back or his neck? Yeah, he does. Well, he'll, he'll probably take the entire season off until the point where he would do a buyout. So it would be a risk in, in sort of in a different way than Odin, but in similar in the sense that you don't know how much you're going to get from him. But if, you, if he can come back at full strength or close to full strength, having played very little of the season, maybe you work off the rust the last five, ten games, he could, be, he could swing a series. I don't know, because I feel like he doesn't have the size, though, to bang with, like, Lopez or Hibbert. He's like six ten. He's undersized. He's getting a little older. I feel like he's more of a backup five at this point in his career. That's a good point. Okay. Well, is, is there anything else that you'd like to like to discuss? I guess you know. I'm curious as a Warriors guy, what your prediction of the season is because they're a team of so wildly different expectations. What's your take on the Warriors? If you had to guess right now. They're a team that has 
immense potential, particularly as a playoff team, if the coaching staff is creative enough to maximize it. I think that they have the possibility of doing some defensive stuff with Iguodala that teams haven't done in a long time in terms of cross-matching. So having Iggy guard the Iguodala, he doesn't like Iggy, guard their be- uh, the other team's best perimeter player because Clay can guard the three and the two. You can do some interesting things with that. But the part that concerns me is that last year it took David Lee getting hurt and being unable to play for Mark Jackson to get really experimental and experimental to me is going to be how the Warriors, how the Warriors really beat the elite teams rather than being in the conversation. And so that's a big question. David Lee is kind of like the big domino for this whole thing. I know he's got his, that's the huge internet war thing with the David Lee fans, detractors, but yeah, that's kind of the the big question to me is how he fits into this, the small ball system at all. Yeah, and he I, I wrote a piece over the summer that advocated for his to me his ideal role would be that his primary job obviously would still play lots of minutes because the team doesn't have the depth to do otherwise. But you have him his primary role to me is back would be ideally backup center and running kind of being a linchpin of the offense when Curry sits, which is a different idea than they've ever considered trying. And then you still have him play power forward minutes because there aren't enough minutes in a game to play when, when Bogut sits. And so you, you play the kind of more traditional lineups as well. But I think that beyond the team getting injured enough where it's a necessity, that is the type of, the type of kind of move that seems unlikely given the way that this team has been handled the last couple of years. Yeah. I mean, just from the outside, I can't see David Lee having any other score on the bench. He's what, 28, 29 on a big deal. He doesn't make an all-star team. He's not going to want to play on the bench. I can't see that happening. Yeah, and he's very popular with ownership, too. And he, while the team loves all six guys that are considered, you know, starter quality, with that being Curry, Clay Thompson, Harrison Barnes, Iguodala, um, Bogut, and David Lee, they, as much as they're high on all of them, it would it would be such a strange kind of move for the team, just given the way that they've run everything for the last couple of years, to put their, to put David Lee on the bench. I guess the other question is they can't pay all those guys, right? They got to pay Clay pretty soon, so they can't they can't pay six guys big money. So at some point, well, they'll have to give, right? Well, it might. the The interesting part of that is that they structured the Bogut contract so that it's descending in the so that his contract, as long, if they aren't going to pay David Lee at the end of his contract, the timing on it could work for them to stay about the same and then just shed David Lee by then. And the hope would be then that they had drafted or acquired through some other means a guy who can fill that role, whatever you see it as. But they can't pay the six of them once the the two guys that are underpaid now become properly paid. Yeah, I guess that'll be the thing for Golden State long term is figuring out that mix exactly. Because with the West, with, with Houston, Oklahoma City, you can't mess up at all. you got to get that thing running real tight to stay on, stay on, stay on pace. Well, and we're learning from Oklahoma City how how tight the margins are because they're they're I think they're going to be more beatable in a playoff series, even though Durant and Westbrook are fabulous, because they don't have a solid enough group of guys around them, like you could even say Houston, that can make you pay when you key on those guys. And Oklahoma City having having Kendrick Perkins and presumably as long as Scotty Brooks is their coach, playing him important minutes, that that will lead to that'll lead to a more exploitable team than some of their peers. And I would say a lot of that can be attributed to their unwillingness, I guess, to pay the luxury tax. 
Yeah, I mean, that, the whole Perkins thing, that's just the whole, like, you can't even, at this point, it is what it is, I guess, right? Like, that's just something, it's not even really defense, it's, okay. Here, here's a Perkins view of Oklahoma City. I'm a really big Jeremy Lamb fan. I want to say, in 2016, when Durant is free agent, Lamb will be a top five shooting guard. That's my prediction. Wow. Well, and if you see it that way, then that, that and there you can justify that. He's an immensely talented player. Yeah, I, th- I think he's got. I feel like he's really gotten a bad rap because he was a rookie on a 61 team, not getting minutes. Everyone's ready to write him off. Oh, he's done, useless. 21 year old, don't worry about him. Obviously, he can't play. Like it takes a while for these young guys to go in a bit. Don't be so over the. Give him some time. Especially on a team that has a hierarchy and a pecking order like Oklahoma City. Some for some guys that comes easily because they can kind of fill into a smaller role and for some guys it takes a little while to both adjust to the league and adjust to the team that you're put on. Especially for him, he didn't do training camp with them. He got he got traded a year ago yesterday. Yeah, he did, that's right. Yeah. Maybe it'll be a big trade fill today for this thirty one deadline. We'll see. There could be. I think my prediction for this year is that we'll see a surprising move with a player in the pending free agent class, but I think it'll come closer to the deadline because there are so many teams this year that that could have maybe not hopes, but expectations of being relevant. And so once they know whether they're buyers or sellers, I think we could see some very interesting players available that teams might not have considered available. And then that could lead to some moves that weren't really conceived of before because teams never thought that a certain player would be on the block. Yeah, I mean, it should be it should be fun to watch. There's a lot of storylines to go. Should, I'm ready for the season to start, man. It should be fun. Yeah, and it's going to be it's gonna be fun the whole way. There, the basketball quality will be good, and then around the deadline there's going to be intrigue, and then for people like me that are draft guys, that's going to be looming over everything because whether or not you're the most sold on Wiggins, the, the depth of this class, is the reason why, to me, if you want to call it tanking or if you want to call it, you know, just not caring about winning this season in terms of building your roster, that's where it has the benefit. Because even if you don't get one of the top two, you're still probably going to be getting a very good NBA starter, which is unusual for fifth and sixth pick unless you do well. I, yeah, I mean, I feel like with the draft, there's always good players. I haven't really watched these, these, these freshmen, but obviously all the hype they're getting That'll be even more fun to watch for me personally. Is watching Wiggins and Kentucky and Smart. It'll be, it'll be, it'll, that'll be even more NBA, I think, really. Well, thank you so much for coming on. We'll love to talk to you again soon. All right, man. Have a good one. Thanks so much to Jonathan for coming on. You can check out his work at realgm.com. Next up is Arturo Galetti, who you may know from the Wages of Wins, and he has a new site, boxscoregeeks.com. It's a really good read information, cool layout, and you could have it up while you're listening to our conversation because we reference a lot of the different materials that they put out over the last few weeks. So in terms of in terms of how all your stuff structures, how, how does age factoring, because we're talking about somebody like Brooke or like Beal, do you, how do, do you expect for them to improve? Is it based on, like, I know Pelton talks a lot about projections based on age and just expected improvement. Yeah, I would rather have done a lot of work on that, uh, and, and typically what happens is you expect players to get better as they get closer to about 26 years old, and then mm-hmm. they slowly, they reach a peak, they stay there, and then after they're about 30, there's a slow decline uh, going. Now, it's interesting, that model has actually moved over the last 20 or 30 years because there's an improvement in, let's call it medical technology, uh, or I mm-hmm. think, you know, I, I think, you know, 30 years ago, Kobe Bryant never plays again. 
right? He, he, Kobe Bryant would have had to retire three or four years ago. And, and if he'd been playing 30 years ago when he ha- first had his knee injuries and his problems, you know, Derrick Rose wouldn't be coming back as the same guy. He, he'd be a completely different guy. Think about the guys like Bernard King who were never able to come back. So you kind of have to account for that. But, but again, you expect young teams get better, old teams get worse. So to give an example, and this is something that's really frustrating to me. So the, the, the Rockets won 45 games last year, right? Yeah. So if the Rockets had done nothing in the offseason, nothing, absolutely nothing, you would expect the Rockets to be about a 50-win team because they were one of the youngest teams in the league. They went out and won 45 games, and just on age improvement, this is the same thing we saw with Oklahoma City, just on age improvement, you expect that team to get five or six or seven wins better because it was such a young team. Now, and then, you know, when you add in the fact that, well, not only did they get older and get better because of the regular age progression, but they also added a Hall of Fame center, and you added a couple other players, and you're saying, well, that team is going to be closer to, like, the 60-win level, which I'm saying is frustrating because I keep seeing people go, like, oh, 53 wins. So if you told me – if you just took last year's team and you said that last year's team was going to get better and win 53 games, I'd say you were right. And if you if you take that and add, you know, Dwight Howard equation, you've got to move that number up for that team. The, the opposite is going to be something like the, the Nets where, you know, that's an old it's – a, it's a great roster. I think it's a good playoff roster. But it's a really old, kind of fragile roster, and you, you kind of expect some of those guys to either not play or not play as efficiently. Well, yeah, and what's interesting um, in terms of the Rockets, and I was looking at I was looking at your write-up, and to see that how you anticipate, and I think you might be right in terms of how they're going to balance the Ashik and Howard minutes, because as I as I wrote at the time, you know, if they're go- if they're going to go the more conventional route and generally replace Ashik and Greg Smith minutes, presumably with Howard minutes, it makes them less better than replacing poor quality player minutes with uh, with Dwight. Well, one one interesting factor that people forgot. Did you see what they did to the Grizzlies today? Uh, I don't think I did. They basically just, Houston just basically said, you're not scoring from inside five feet. You're going to have to go to the three-point line. We dare you to shoot from the three-point line. Basically, Asik and Howard were in. And, and, and Asik and Howard, at top physical form, uh, you know, playing top defense, you're not going to score in the post. And they're just teams in the league. They're going to eat because if you take the amount of scoring that team has and you throw in, like, a lineup, like, if you remember when Asik played in Chicago, there was a lineup that would throw out there that Tips would throw out there that people just couldn't score on. And that's the kind of thing that apparently Dwight and Asik are going to bring to the table. Now, whatever else, I mean, like, I know people are talking about, like, you know, they're going to have problems scoring. And, and, and people who say that really should go look at some of the stuff that George Carl was doing with the Nuggets. Just, 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 just half-hour play in the post surround them with shooters, and then have a seek play off the, off the uh, out-of-bounds line like the, the like Denver would have with, uh, with Fareed or, or JaVale, and then just come in when there's a missed shot, just basically opposite and come in. And just the, that's not even too much of a problem. I think they can score that way. But, but the amount of, of damage they did on defense to that team is going to be really silly. I mean, like, if you can't shoot the three, you're not beating that Houston team. And not only that, but they have defense that should be able to generate offense as well because they have guys who can produce in transition. And as you're talking about with Carl, you know, that's the other factor that when you have guys who are weaker in the half court, then you just put them in half court situations less often. Yeah, I think the, the, there was one, uh, you know, we, we, we Trey, who's my, uh, my uh, co-collaborator, had a thing with George Carl. But here's the thing. We never, I never disliked George Carl as a strategic or, or strategy guy. The problem with George Carl has always been lineups. And the fact that he kind of gets in his own head in a playoff series. He, he basically beats himself and starts playing the other team's game, and that's what kills him. But strategically, he was brilliant. He did some really interesting things in terms of, you know, generating spacing when you have two bigs. 
And I think, you know, we've kind of at this point established that Houston's a really smart team, and they're going to figure it out. So, I mean, all these, like, oh, they can't play Dwight and the Sieg things together, those are silly. They're going to do it, and people are going – I mean, literally, I think there are teams who just, you know, they, they, they may shut a team out for a quarter at some point during the year. I think that's <laughs> actually a possibility. Well, and I think that McHale has been underrated as a coach in terms of utilization of talent – and and I think that having he's a pretty well suited guy to figuring out how to make this work, and being able and he ha, I think he has the latitude in terms of from management and everything else that if it doesn't work then they can within reason bring in other pieces that might work better. Yeah, to clarify, if anybody was listening, you know we we I've been doing projections over in Boxcore Geeks, which is our new site. And just kind of putting all the numbers up, and I have uh, Houston as the number one seed at 60 wins. And and here's the thing: I assumed that Houston was not going to play Patrick Beverly as much as they should, and I think that's actually not going to be the case. I thought they were they weren't going to play a seek as much as they should because of all the talk, and it, it sounds like that's not going to be the case either, from what I've seen. So it was a 60, and I really do kind of feel that it's going to be closer to 65. I think that team is the number one seed. It's gonna they're going to have the number one seed in the in the league. And it's going to be by, by quite a walk. What's going to be interesting is what happens once we get to the playoffs. But, I mean, I think that team, that team's kind of like those Orlando teams with, with Dwight where, like, they just made the regular season look easy. The, the question is going to be what happens when you get to, to shorter lineups and what happens then. But, but, but I don't think there's any doubt that that team is going to be, like, it's going to take something special not, for, not to have that team be the number one seed. Interesting. Uh, one one other thing that I saw in the, in the in the numbers for the Rockets was this maintaining a high minutes projection for Greg Smith. So I'm guessing you're envisioning him sliding over and playing four next to either Dwight or Sheik. Yeah, I mean I think he's a good. I mean he's a good fit. I mean this is kind of the role he was he was there. He's the guy who's going to come in and and you know you know, and, and you know clean up. And, and and again think of think of the role that the Chris uh, Bourbon Anderson had for the Heat in the playoffs. It's the guy when LeBron was in the post, and there's a guy who's like sitting in the corner getting rebounds and putbacks. Greg Smith is perfect for that, you know. And again, it's not like Houston has lack of shooters. So I envision the Houston offense as one guy in the top of the key, two guys in the corners, and one guy in the post, and one guy on the side just catching rebounds. And I think that's that's basically what they're going to do. It's going to, I mean, if 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 Houston's smart, it's going to look a lot like what San Antonio was doing uh, all of last year with uh, when they would play. Uh, a splitter and uh, dunk it together. It goes along with the thought that I've been having for, as people have been talking about the death of the center for a couple of years. And for me, what that more has been is an issue of supply rather than an issue of, rather than an issue of effect. If you, if a team has legitimate post players on offense or defense, I still think they're the key to winning. It's just that those players became harder to find due to injuries or some other factor that we can't really assess. Like maybe, you know, guys like Greg Oden getting hurt. He could have been, he could have been an amazing player if he'd stayed fully healthy. Yeah, the guys I know, here's the, here's the point I'll make. The guys I know who make a living of, of, of betting on basketball games, there's a truism when they look at the, the model for who's going to win, it's you got to have the big guy, right? So you, you have to have an effective big man to win the title. This is this never fails. Any team that wins the title has to have that effective big man. And I think, you know, it's in, in, in this, I wrote a great piece at one point talking about how the key for the Heat, the thing that made them go to the next level was, when LeBron kind of said, you know what, I'm going to be that big man, that big man in the post when I need to. And, you know, as a Celtics fan, I mean, I've seen LeBron against the Celtics in a playoff series, you know, take on the center role and say, I'm going to cover the center and you're not going to score. And he also seen him go down and, you know, play the block. So you need that big man. And, 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 and everybody will say, you know, the Heat are playing small ball. They're not playing small ball. They just happen to have LeBron James who can play any, any of the all five positions, right? So it, it, 
slightly different kind of deal. I mean, when you when you start thinking about if you're a small ball team, you know, let me throw a matchup out there for you. I mean, if you're thinking of the Warriors against this, for example, this Rockets team, I have a really hard time seeing this war like the Golden State Warriors are currently built matching up to that Rockets team simply because that team, you know, they've got the two big men and they can dominate the middle. And they've also got the scoring and they've got the wings to chase people on the wings. So if you go small, what's going to happen is they're going to destroy you on the post. I mean, or less, or Bogut's going to fall out, you know. So it's, 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 it makes for a tough matchup. You, you kind of, if they can pull it off and have those two guys, it's going to be kind of, it's going to take something special to, to like beat them. I think, you know, I think the Clippers have the bullets. I think the Spurs have the bullets. I think obviously from the East, the Heat have the bullets, but it's going to take something really special. I think something, you know, again, I think they're a horrible matchup for Memphis because Memphis has no shooting, right? So you, you, with Memphis, you can always do what San Antonio did and say, you know what, you're, you're going to have to beat them with three. Yeah, I think that in some ways the Warriors would be a very interesting matchup in the sense that they don't rely on dribble penetration as much as a lot of the other teams that are perimeter-based. I think that obviously they, they need a portion of it to do well. It'd be Obviously, I think the Rockets would have a better suited team to just to just shut it down and say, the only thing you're going to do is make difficult shots. It would be interesting because the Warriors could just say, okay, and try it. I don't think they'd win, but it would be definitely fascinating in terms of philosophy versus philosophy. The problem is like the, and that's the thing with Houston is they, 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 you know, if you're going to get into a shootout with Houston, Houston's going to be like, he's going to say, fine, we're going to get into a shootout with you because, you know, that's that's the beauty of having Harden and having Lynn and having all these shooters that, that they can actually, you know, I mean, it's gonna, as I said, it's gonna take something special because that's a team that can go both ways, and we haven't had one of those in a while. So uh, before before we really get on, I was thinking it'd be a good idea for from the listeners to get a sense kind of of what what are your core philosophies for the model without break without breaking any of you know any of the secrets of it, just kind of giving them a basic walkthrough of of how it works. Well, I think here's the important bit. Uh, you know, I'm concerned about results, right? So I like to look at what a player has actually done, right? So not how pretty his game looks, not 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 how beautiful his jump shot is, not what not a not what a great scouting report he has, but no, no. Here's what the player has actually physically done on the court. Our model is built around that, and we use those numbers of what the guy's physically done, and then we compare that to kind of a progression of players throughout the last 30, actually at this point it's like 35 years, and then you say, look, here's what we, based on what he's done, this is what we expect on a year-to-year basis, and here's the range that we expect for each player, and using that, you can kind of take, well, based on this roster, you can kind of project out, you know, this is what the team should look like, here's what the, the nominal range should be, and here's the variation based on what we see. So, you know, if you have LeBron James on your team, you know, there's an expectation of LeBron James is great. And this is what you can expect from LeBron James next year. If you add Andrea Bargnani to your team, and Andrea Bargnani just happens to be not, not one of the worst, but the worst player in our database, if you add him to your team, it's going to be really, really bad, right? And, 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 and you know, these are the things we kind of look at. We start looking at what a player's actually done, not where he was drafted, and then just kind of put it all together and do a projection. And as I said, you know, we, we understand, or I understand that I'm going to get some of these things wrong. I, I actually kind of, you know, I'll say this. Last year, my prediction, at the, my final prediction model said that the Spurs would beat the Heat in six in Miami, right? So I, I, I think that I get a free, I mean, and then I got, and, and I had, I think, 18 teams within the air margin, I think the teams that were really large forever were things like Minnesota, 
with the injuries. And I think what was the other? There was another team which was injury bound, which was the oh Philadelphia was the other one because of Andrew Bynum. So I think we did pretty well. I mean, again, we understand that that things happen and things are going to be strange, but we generally do fairly well when we do this within the margin of error. Yeah, and so so going back on the point of you know what a player is actually on the floor, I think. The, there, I'm sure there are predictions that surprise you, but I think one that will surprise a lot of people who aren't as familiar is, are your thoughts on the Knicks? And I, I, I would love to have you walk through that a little bit, and I personally agree with you. Well, here's the thing. If you, you know, you had a Knicks team, and I, and I, and I was saying this to, uh, I mentioned Coach Knicks from B-Ball background, and I was saying, I was talking to him, I was like, I watched the game between the Knicks and the Spurs last year. That was like watching a game from 20 years to the future, in that there were, like, there were no bad mid-range, contested mid-range jumpers taken, Everything was like from three or at the post. It was beautiful. It was just a beautiful game to watch. No turnovers. It was great. And it was kind of down to like, you know, Jason Kidd and Tony Parker just being just fantastic point guards and and just the way that team ran. And, you know, the Knicks are really going to miss uh, Jason Kidd and his leadership. And everything I heard from every insider I talked to was that it was all Jason Kidd who was making all these crazy guys. What was crazy was watching the Knicks doing it. We're like, we know we have these knuckleheads on this team. And it's like anybody who's like followed Carmelo, Carmelo's not a, I mean, he has a beautiful jump shot. He has talent, but he's a knucklehead. He takes, he takes bad shots. He, he loves the bad shot. He's, you know, he's in baseball. You would call it, he's a bad ball hitter. Right. And, and, and that's kind of and Jr. is another bad ball hitter. And, you know, you're, you're throwing in Amare who, you know, who, who's past his prime. And, you know, you you take it out. And, and one of the great things is like, you know, it's like Toronto has been trying to get rid of Vargnani for like for a while. I mean, he's been the noose around their neck. And again, obviously, their GM was married to him because, you know, he, he drafted him number one. But it was the first thing that, you know, the, the, G, the new GM of Toronto did, Masai Uji, who everyone thinks is one of the, the most brilliant GMs in the league and who's the guy who pulled off the mellow trade. And again, Hit one for everybody who thinks Melo's a great player. The the Nuggets proceeded to have their franchise best wins after the Melo trade, right? Not before, after. So their best year ever in terms of wins in regular season was after trading Melo, who's supposedly a franchise player. This doesn't regularly happen when you trade a franchise player. And this guy who managed to pull that trade went to Toronto. And the first thing he did, he picked up the phone and called the New York Knicks and said, have I got a deal for you? And not only did he get, you know, everyone was just stunned at this. Not only were they able to get rid of Bargnani and his contract, but they got the Knicks to give them a draft pick and, you know, uh, Steve Novak. And Steve Novak, for anybody who doesn't know, is like one of the best uh, three-point shooters that we've seen. So you've gone from having a guy who was a great three-point shooter in Steve Novak, who was kind of key to what you were trying to do, and replacing him with a guy who's terrible at shooting threes and just terrible in general. So, you know... Never mind the fact that this team, if you think about it, you know, it's like, so you've, you you replaced these really good players. You, you got rid of a Hall of Famer. You, you got rid of your best three-point shooter. And you brought in a guy who's terrible. You've also, you know, kind of gone through and, like, you know, it, it's a contract year for Melo, which is, that, that's going to be fun in the in, with the New York media. It's, it's um, these guys have gotten somewhat older. Uh, Mar is going to play more, and that's really not a good thing. Uh, let's see. Prigioni's probably the best guard they have on the roster, and he's not going to be, be able to get on the court. Uh, and he's thirty-six. And he's thirty. And he's thirty-six. This is, a, this is generally a bad idea. Let's see. I'm. I'm I know. I'm well, and the the other thing about the Knicks is that they're they they only have maybe three players that are good at, uh, that are quality defenders, and that includes Meta World Peace, who isn't now. And so thinking about it, just in terms of cascading effects. 
that's going to lead to some really interesting consequences of just having that many poor defensive players sharing the floor at the same time. Oh, and, and, and you realize that you have Metal World Peace, Carmelo Anthony, Jarrett Smith, and uh, Kenyon Martin sharing court at, at points during the season. Like, that's not a combustible. The, the sharing courts and going out after, after, after games, that's not a combustible recipe. <laughs> so, I mean, it, everything about this team screams just train wreck and car wreck. I mean, like, and again, I think part of the problem is people kind of underrate how good Jason Kidd is. Jason Kidd is a Hall of Fame all-time point guard. He had more respect than any one of the players with the most respect among his peers that ever seen, and he left that team. And you take that guy away, and, you know, you're left with something where, like, you know, these guys are knuckleheads, and they're going to play like knuckleheads. I mean, there are going to be so many bad shots taken by this team that it's not even going to be funny. I've got them at 35 wins. Vegas has them at 50. And, I mean, I think even if everything breaks perfectly for this team, they're going to struggle to get to 500. And I really don't think it's going to break perfectly because there are just so many things that can go wrong with this team that, I mean, I I just – I mean, everything just screams train wreck. I mean, the Knicks just went out and – and had the Knicks offseason, which is like, let's see, let's, you know, oh, let's, here's what we need. We need more. We can't play defense, but what we need is more scoring. You know, I mean, I think, you know, and, and I think I wrote this at one point. It's like, you're going to have Ray Felton, J.R. Smith, Carmelo Anthony, Amari Stoudemire, and Andrea Bergnani on the court at the same time, and they're going to have to defend an actual NBA team. And, yeah, it's, it's going to be fascinating to see how, how other teams exploit what they give them. Because they're going to be giving them a lot. Well, I mean, here's how did how did it, what happened to that Knicks team last year? Well, once Jason Kidd lost his shot and they couldn't put him on the court, basically Indiana just said, actually, and the Celtics did this too. It says like, you know what? We're just going to take away the three point line and we're going to take away the post, and you can have as many mid range jumpers as you want. And by golly, the Knicks took as many mid range jumpers as they wanted, and that's not a formula for winning in the NBA. And it's like, it, it, for the uninitiated, it's like right now, if, if, if what defenses want is for you to take contested 15-footers. 15 15 footers. And the Knicks are experts, and as I said, they're bad ball hitters. They're going to want to take those shots. And I just don't see it ending well for that team. Was there anything when you were putting together your numbers and putting together the win projections that legitimately surprised you that came out of the model? Uh, well, I think the Knicks... I think the fact that it liked the Celtics that much, uh, I, I just wrote a piece on that, and where we kind of said that that team basically, Danny Ainge basically can do whatever he wants. He has all these interesting pieces, a lot of draft picks, and he can either decide to tank or he can, you know, or he can just wait until somebody gets desperate and, and try to pick up some players and contend. I think that was a surprise to me. I thought that, I thought they were a little worse than they showed. I think let's see. I think the fact that the Thunder were projected as fifth. In the uh, in the uh, in the West, because you know you've got Houston, San Antonio, Memphis, and the Clippers, right? And then you've got the, the Thunder. Uh, and I think I think I mean again, I think partly there is just because I think Scotty Brooks just for whatever reason I think you know that somebody was joking with me that I think uh, Kendrick Perkins has a has a like some sort of video of uh, Scotty Brooks in a compromising position, and that's why he can't like get him out of the rotation. I think it's that team's actually interesting because it looks like Steve Adams might actually be a good player, and if that's the case and he can take the minutes away from Perkins, that, that team will actually get be a little better and actually get back in the conversation. But, I mean, if, if the, go ahead. The Thunder are an interesting situation because 
I, I think that more, more maybe more than any team, the minutes distribution among the players that they have could have a have a bigger impact in some ways than the players that they lost. I mean, excluding like move, moving from Harden down to Lamb is one thing, but just having Perkins play so many minutes and the potential of having Fisher on the floor in important or unimportant moments, just it's shocking. Well, I think uh, 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 Andres has a great line. Who's my, my collaborator? He says that they're suffering for a severe case of perky fish. Right, so they, they they have the perky fish, and and for whatever reason, you know, Scotty Brooks can't just can't get the perky fish out of his system, right? And and I think, and, and again, I'm I'm not convinced that Scotty Brooks as a coach is going to win the, the NBA championship, and 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 if I there of that the the top four seeds in the in the West, I would not pick Oklahoma to beat any of those four teams in a playoff series right now, not a one. Uh, interesting. Uh, another thing that I found fascinating in terms of what's already been released is how high Utah is. I mean, again, here's the interesting thing about that team. There, there's a lot of – they got rid of the – people are really loud that, down on them because they got rid of the, the three of the top four scores, right? But, but again, the, the guys they got rid of, you know, Jefferson is overrated. And, uh, you know, I mean, Millsup is good. But, I mean, they had some effective guys on the bench. They've got favors, which is really good. We like the guys they drafted. We like Gobert. We like Cantor. We think he's great. We like the the other guys on that team. That team is one of those rosters where like there there wasn't you know if you look at them there wasn't any there weren't any really bad players on that on that roster. So getting rid of those guys and move the other young guys up has actually put them in a good position. I I do think again keep in mind that they play in Utah and there's going to be a lot of teams tanking. So I mean you know you think Philadelphia is going to win a game in Utah. Or, or like a road game in Utah. You think uh, Charlotte's going to win a road game in Utah? You think, uh, let's see, who else am I forgetting here? You think Milwaukee's winning a road game in Utah? I think it's going to be interesting. I think they're going to initially the pressure was Adam higher, but then kind of, you know, we went through it and and with with a save and just put in some variability. And I think they're 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 a 500 team. Right. They're going to be the other. They're going to be the other spacing test too. Houston potentially playing Ishik and Howard because at least last year Favors and Cantor, they're both very good players, but they don't really have range. I'm not. It's going to be interesting to see if it works for one team. It very well could work for both offensively. Well, I mean, I think I think they're a good shot at being an eight seed and just getting destroyed by Houston in the first round because I think they, as I said, you, they have some range issues. And, and I think they're 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 an interesting young team. I think they're going to be a fun team. We like Jeremy Evans, who's on their bench. We don't know if Jeremy Evans can stay healthy. Uh, he 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 hasn't. He's been a good player when he has, but he just hasn't been able to stay healthy. So again, it's a team with with some interesting thing. I mean, if we could, you know, if I could predict the future and know how all these guys are going to play, they're going to play more, then I'd say they're probably better. But I think you know, I think they're a good candidate for like for being a surprise, maybe getting an eight seed and maybe getting Ty Corbin a a. a uh, a uh, a coach of the year. I I actually like a friend of mine had uh had has them and 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 went to Vegas specifically to bet on Utah. They specifically to bet against the the Knicks and and bet on Utah. I think the over under on them is like 26, 26 and a half. And I think in this season with so many teams tanking against a team that's playing in Utah, that's kind of ridiculous. And the other thing with Utah is that even potentially if things go badly for them to start out the year, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world for them to get one more quality piece. And then and then use that to really get their core because when you're talking about a team in Utah, it's a they have to build their teams a little bit differently because of what cap space means for them and wooing free agents. Though obviously you can use cap space to get other players, but if they could get a top 
like theoretically, if the, if they have, let's say, a Minnesota situation and they have a bunch of guys, then you're looking at a team that has an amazing core for next year, yeah. which would be really fun. He, but the thing about that team is, is I could definitely see that team playing in Minnesota, like playing Utah for the next four or five years, because it's a, it's a good young team. They've got some interesting bigs. They've got some pieces they sign on the long term. So it's not a team that looks like it's tanking. It's a team that's kind of said, look, this these are our young guys, and, and these guys are going to be with us, and we're going to play, and we're going to develop them. So I think they're going to be a good a good shot at being, like, in the middle of the pack. I like their roster way better than something like, say, the Pelicans, right? I was, I was just, just going to bring up the Pelicans because they're, it's, it was such an interesting philosophy, and I say interesting in a largely negative way, um, to go to try to build immediately and to build in the way that they did. And it to, to obviously their worst case scenario in some ways would be to to kind of for you to be completely right. And I it, it'd be fascinating to see that happen. Well, I mean, here's the thing: you have a guy like Chris Paul walk through the door maybe once every thirty years, right? So once he walks through the door and you let him go, then you can't be surprised. It's going to be a struggle to get back. And I, and I, I mean. That team has – remember what I said how, like, Utah has no really bad players on the roster? Well, the Pelicans do have some bad players on the roster. They have Farrah Gordon, who can't stay on the court, and isn't that great when he's gotten on really unresolved because he's so inconsistent. You have Austin Rivers, who really, if his last name wasn't Rivers, wouldn't be anywhere close to the NBA. And, I, and, I, and, and I'm willing to say he's like he, – he, his numbers are – we're atrocious in college. They're atrocious now. And, and, and they, they've got, I mean, they've got all these landmines on the team. It's not in, in great shape. I'm not convinced that they have the roster. They, they should make some trades. I like Tariq. I like, uh, I like uh, Davis. I like Ryan Anderson. But the players around those three guys aren't great. And I think that's the problem when you, you know, you, you can have these teams that, like, have these three good guys that would work if the roster around them didn't suck. But the roster around them sucks, and I mean that's 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 a real problem. That's just a a problem with having a bad front office that brings these bad guys in. You know, like the better teams in the leagues don't have this problem. Miami doesn't have this problem. Chicago doesn't have this problem. Um, the Celtics don't have that problem right now. Which like you you have you don't have these guys who really shouldn't be in the league playing for these teams. You have guys who play well, and so when you lose a guy, then you can kind of oh you know you know the Bulls can lose Rose and, and still be you know, a competitive, you know, team that can win a, a first-round playoff series, right? And I think, you know, if if, if 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 the Pelicans lose Anthony Davis for any extended length period of time, they're going in the lottery. And, yeah, and it's it, – the other thing with them is just in terms of when you're when you lose, when you're doing the kind of the roster rotation that isn't an off season, you want to be able to have kind of a baseline quality of the guys that are getting your rotation minutes, and that's a real that's a real challenge. You know, that's something that's identifying talent and cultivating talent, whether that be drafting really well or just making intelligent signings. I think the Spurs are an amazing example of that, of a team that continually brings in people that are worthy of playing for them. Did you did you by chance like uh, read the the piece I wrote on the Bucks? I haven't read it yet. No. The the Bucks is really interesting because my argument for the Bucks is that they they basically said once that once Bogut got hurt, they basically decided that they weren't going to compete, and they've been bluffing their fan base. But every move that they've made 
since then has been to kind of clear the cap. And it's interesting. They only kept, like, if you look at the four guys they kept from last year to this year, it's the two guys that wins produce, uh, the two guys wins produce loves, another guy that uh, win shares loves, and uh, the other guy who was loved by plus minus, right? So they kept these four guys who they think are, are positive, and they just basically just kind of built, like, short-termers around them. And if you look at the fact that their, 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 their salary structure, their, their payroll winds up at exactly the minimum for the league. Right, so it's like, hmm, why would why would you build a roster that lines up at exactly the minimum, right? So they've been clearing cap space and just kind of building this. And and again, it's interesting. I mean, they they're just they're just going through and, and they're treating their roster kind of or the season kind of as an audition. So we're bringing all these guys in, and you know, it's like we'll keep who we like, but like we won't keep players who like who don't hit targets. So if you've got guys who aren't productive we're not going to get married to them. We're just going to get rid of them. It doesn't matter who it is, right? So we'll bring them in, and if we need to move them, we move them. And I think that's where teams kind of get screwed up is they have, like, the, the whole loyalty thing or the whole sunk cost thing because, you know, you know the Toronto with Bargnani because we drafted him number one, so we got to keep him. Or the whole thing with Kobe. Oh, Kobe's Kobe, so we've got to re-sign him. Well, Kobe's not Kobe anymore, right? So, you know, the, the, the I saw that they were flashing the uh, – cup. Uh, Boston Cup chat were saying they're going to re-sign Kobe is important. And as a Celtics fan, I was happy because that means the Lakers are going to suck for the for the next three or four years. Because, again, Kobe's not 25 anymore, right? He's, he's what, 36, coming off, like, like this experimental procedure that nobody knows is going to work. And, like, with the history of, like, you know, it's collapsing. And, I mean, I think if you think about it, so, you know, you're going to sign him to another long-term deal. And, again, I think, I think Laker fans who think that LeBron's going to want to come play with Kobe are a little insane. Why would LeBron want to come play with a team that has nothing around them, right? So, and, and, and this is not hating on Kobe. This is saying when you're 36, you're not the guy you were when you were 30 or the guy you were when you were 25, right? Well, to me, if LeBron was, if his goal was to go to a big media market, let's say by, on the concept that it was, and let's say that you can't maneuver a sign and trade, then to me the most logical option would be to try to wait one more year and then have New York clear the decks and try to build around that. Because I mean, obviously they have a lot of flawed pieces now, but if you could theoretically clear clear the clear the flotsam off their roster when they when everybody expires. Well, but the, the problem with the Lakers is what? How much of that space is Kobe going to take? Yeah, well, look, and that there's nothing there. It's a bare cupboard, and I think you know you, you can get this, something similar in Miami. I think the Knicks are the worst run franchise in the league by far over the last 30 years, and really, you know, they they, they are. They just they just they can't help themselves. You know, James Dolan just wants the guys who chuck the ball. That's you know he he likes guys with tattoos for whatever reason. Nothing against guys with tattoos, but he, he likes you know troubled guys who take too many shots, and that's not the way to win the NBA. And and I think. For the Lakers, like, here's the thing. If, if you're LeBron, LeBron's not going to go to a place that is not ready. So, I mean, they'll have the conversation around, like, Cleveland. And I think the Cleveland thing's realistic because the Cleveland thing, I think Cleveland has a shot to be good this year. They have a shot to be bad, but they also have a shot to be good. I, I mean, I think if, if Bynum plays and, and Varejao plays, right, if you can get 2,000 minutes out of both those guys over the season, I think Cleveland's a good – I think Cleveland's a top four that you see in the East. Now, I'm not sure that that can happen, you know. I mean, you know, it's like you're saying, oh, Bynum's going to play. We don't know that. But if he does play and Varejao plays, that's a really interesting team. And I think, you know, if you're LeBron, you have to kind of look at that. And that that's reasonable. I can go to this team and I can win – or, you know, I can stay with this team and I'm going to win, he's not going to go to New York or LA to rebuild and just piss off another fan base. That, that's not going to happen. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So are there any players that you see really surprising in a positive or negative way going into this coming year? <sighs> really surprising in this coming year. I think Derrick Rose is going to be really good. 
uh, I think. And, and again, uh, and, and people say, oh, he's Derek Rose. No, no, no. no I actually think he's going to play. He's going to play like uh, he sh- like like he people think he played when he won the MVP. He didn't deserve right. So that's that's what I think about Derek Rose. I actually think that uh, Chicago is going to be right there with Miami. Uh, all the way down to the end, and I think just partly because also he's taking all these three, 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 uh, threes and he's doing better at that. Uh, I think uh, Rudy Gay is an interesting uh, player, as much maligned Rudy Gay, but you know Rudy Gay was uh, apparently close to being legally blind before uh, before he had eye surgery in the off season. So he he almost he, he the story goes that he went to renew his license and they couldn't they almost didn't renew it and they told him he had to have surgery or he couldn't drive a car. So and the numbers, the early returns from the, the preseason is his numbers are up in terms of shooting. So it's an interesting kind of, kind of take. I think if, if, if Gay is better, then Toronto uh, could actually challenge for the Atlantic front. I think that's a decent team. They, they got rid of Bergnani. I like Jonas Valanciunas. And I think that if Gay, as I said, if Gay is back to his form from where he got before he got hurt a couple of years back, then I think that's a team that can win 40, 46, 47 games and, 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 and be right there with Brooklyn. Well, I think. Well, go ahead. And to me, like like Utah, Toronto's in an interesting place because they totally could retool if things you know if things don't go well. Rudy Gay's sort of in a in a contract year because he can opt out. I expect that he will, and so they and jo- I think Jonas is going to have a great year. And if they can if they can put pieces together and even not have the win totals to all the way back that up in some ways, then they can then they can do that. And then if if they want to parlay Rudy into something else at the deadline. That would give them a very interesting piece. Did the Toronto end up seven and one in the, in the preseason? Uh, that sounds I, right. I don't follow the preseason too closely. I believe not. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's interesting to watch. I mean, I think uh, it was interesting that uh, yeah, they finished six and one. I think it was interesting that Rudy Gay was shooting better. It was interesting that Demar Derozan was actually making better choices. I do think that that team finally has a GM that matches. That's a really smart team in terms of analytics. I've talked to some of their guys, but nobody, it's kind of a divide. Nobody was listening to what they were saying. I think Masai will listen to it. And I think that he will also, you know, he will get other pieces. I think that's, that's, that's an intriguing team. And as I said, I like them to possibly win the Atlantic. I think surprising. Let's see. I think Detroit's going to be surprising to a lot of people. Uh, Drummond's actually going to play. They, they, the Pistons have been kind of managing his minutes, and I think they're not going to manage. It. He's going to play as much as he can, and you know he's really that good. If you have if guys, people who haven't seen him need to see him. He's going to be that good. I think that's 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 going to be really that the central is going to be really really tough, and I think that's I, I think as I said I, I wrote I, I said the Milwaukee was going to have a much worse season, partly because I think every team in the central but them is actually going to be much improved from last season, and actually I do think. Another surprise to people is going to be when we kind of eventually put the Pacers up, and we, we've got the Pacers at something like uh, closer to like 44, 43 wins, because simply because the fact that like their division has gotten much stronger around them, and people think their bench got better, but no, it, it really didn't. I mean, adding Luis Scola at this point in his career is not making your bench better. Yeah, and it's it's going to be interesting with the Pacers because. Roy Hibbert, when I was going back and kind of thinking about his season, his regular season, his defense was was good, but he just he kind of in some ways had the same criticism that I've had on him since he was a draft prospect, which is that he doesn't bring it in that same difference making way enough to to kind of carry the team when they need it. Well, Indiana was all about their top five. 
right? Their their top five was really really good. They didn't really play anybody else, and they they had some. I mean, they said bad. They had that okay bench. And I think what happens is I don't know that you know given one year. I mean, some of their players are old, and you know particularly uh, you know uh, you know David West, David West, Scola. David West and Scola. And I, I don't know that they're going to have the same injury luck that they had last year. And as I said. Every team in their division got stronger except the Bucks. The, the, the Bulls are better. The Pistons are better. The Cavs most likely are better. I mean, they're, they're going to have a struggle not to finish fourth in their division. If, if, I mean, and I'm saying this, if the Cavs, as I said, if the Cavs get 2,000 minutes from Bynum and 2,000 minutes from Verajao, then it's going to be, a, a, you know, finishing fourth in that division might actually be a team that wins 47 games. Yeah, and, and and also to think about in terms of how that affects them for seeding, that could be a very interesting kind of set of effects in terms of moving them down and possibly facing a team like Miami in the second round as opposed to the, the conference finals. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the, they were uh, kind of a victim of, of circumstances. And the, nobody, there was nobody else in last year because of like the injuries and whatnot. And I think they, they had a good, a, good, a good run, but I think they were kind of helped. I, I always raise a stat that like LeBron James, I think has fouled out in three games in his career. And two of them just happened to be in the Eastern conference final in the same ref where like the series would be tied if Miami lost. So it's, you know, I, I think that kind of the, the league does, does like to kind of juice the decks a little bit. And people who don't think that really don't follow closely enough, but things do get kind of strange and, in some of these series, but this is—I'm not taking away from Indiana. I think Indiana was a really good team last year. I just think there was a series of factors that contributed to that, and I expect them to regress to the mean a little bit. I've been thinking for a while, and I wrote this in my season preview that I think the Nets are going to be a better postseason team than regular season team by a pretty decent margin, just by tightening up the rotations, assuming they stay healthy. Is that something you agree with? Yeah, I've got them at about. I just put that in. I think I had them at 46 or 47 wins. Uh, simply because, again, I, I know KG and I know Paul Pierce. They're old at this point. I think that it's good. they're going to have a, a hard time staying on the court for the for the length of the season. They're already somewhat banged up. I'm not sure I trust Brook Lopez to kind of, you know, have magically solved his rebounding problem. I think that could be an issue uh, going into the season. I think that I think Reggie Evans is going to play less during the regular season. That's a problem. I think uh, AK47 is really fragile. I mean, Karolenko, I've had Karolenko on like every fantasy team for every time he's played in the NBA for the last five or six years, and he always goes off and misses two months at some point in the season, right? So that's going to happen. I think, you know, as I said, KG's old, Pierce is old, and, 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 and I don't know that the other, the other possibility is also, you know, there's a real chance that the, that team, if there's, a, there's a 20, 30% chance that, you know, they win it in, by, by February, they've already won their, their division, and they just basically just rest everybody for the playoffs. Now, getting into the playoffs, once you're in the playoffs, that team is really, really good because you start looking at, at the guys that are going to roll out. I mean, their top six is it, it, it's just freaking scary. Once you don't have to pay, play all the guys past the top six, they're a better playoff team than they are a, uh, a uh, regular season team. I agree with you. And, they, and they're, also, they're also a team that their guys, they have a lot of guys who've always been kind of high on the priority for a team and, ha- and could be much more effective moving down. I'm thinking of Joe Johnson primarily. I think Joe Johnson could be a very interesting player not being the guy that he was on the Hawks. I would not go to sleep on the fact that, 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 that uh, the Russian might actually make another trade. I mean, I think at some point... That could happen. I don't know that necessarily the team that you're seeing for the for the for the Nets is a team that you're going to get in the playoffs. They they might have another move in them. And and, and 
don't underestimate the fact that like you know the Russian cares not for money, right? So he this is he's spending uh, I think it's 191 million dollars in payroll this year, and this to him is just it's entertainment money. He 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 doesn't care. So he he might be willing to suck some other contract down and actually replace that. I like Joe Johnson, but I mean I don't know necessarily he's going to be. I, I, hell, I don't even know if Daryl is going to be on the team come playoff time. You know, I, he we'll see. I mean, I, I, as I said, I like them as a playoff team. I think they got some interesting pieces, and I, I really don't know if we've seen the last move from this team. So, um, other than the moves that we've already talked about, so we'll exclude Bynum and Bargnani, are, are there any moves that stood out as the best and the worst moves of the summer? Well, I mean, obviously, we, we talked about Karolinko. That was really good. I thought that was, that, was, that was, I mean, I don't know if it was completely legal, but it was a really good move. Uh, let's see. Uh, other good moves. I like the Bynum contract I liked, I mentioned, and I like the fact that it's incentive-laden so they can get out of it if, if something goes wrong. That was interesting. I thought the Greg Oden move was brilliant. Uh, it, it, it's telling. It should be telling to the league if, if Miami and, the, and San Antonio are fighting over a player, right? These are like two of the smartest franchises. I mean, I would say probably the two smartest franchises in the league, and they're fighting over signing a player. There's something. There's something there. Uh, and I really, you know, there, there's a sh- there's a chance that that's actually what swings the title this year. The fact that Odin wound up in Miami. And again, I mean, there's a, there's a chance. I mean, we don't know if he's going to be healthy for season. He's going to be playing. But it, it, if Miami can get you know, let's say a thousand five hundred, thousand six hundred minutes of Greg Oden being Greg Oden, then you know that then then we don't even have to talk about uh, who's going to win the title. The other positive move that stuck out to me, even though it was during the draft, was uh, the Grizzlies trading Darrell Arthur for Costa Cufas. Yeah, no, I think I think uh, I think uh, uh, since Hollander signed with the with the Grizzlies, I, every move they've made I've liked. The only move I didn't like was they I thought they probably should have kept Calderon. Uh, and 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 kind of rolled with him because I think the, the the flaw the fatal flaw for that team is they can't shoot and they really I mean they, I, I think they can it's a fatal flaw that they can solve because they've got Kufas and they got Davis on the uh, on the team and they can trade one of those guys that can trade for a shooter but they really do need to do that because right now you you can you can take Memphis out of a game right and that's that's their flaw right now. The other big question with them is that I think they're going to trade one of their big men that isn't Gasol. I think there's a decent chance that it's Zach Randolph if they can find a market for him. Yeah, I mean, it's a, the, the Davis, the Davis uh, trade kind of made, the, made this possible because they've got some decent backup on there. But I think, again, what they need is a shooter. So who's out there? Who's the shooter that they're going to go out and get? Who's the, who is that three-point swing man that they're going to go out and get? Is Jimmy Butler available? Is, is, I don't think so. Is, is, you know, they, they kind of need some team that's out there that's, that's not going to be competitive to trade with. I mean, I, yeah. I, I mean, in, Corver, Corver's a possibility depending on what Atlanta does. I think Atlanta is better than everybody gives them credit for. I think Atlanta is going to be hovering. They're going to be what they've always been the last three or the last five or six years, which is they're going to be a four seed. They're going to win about 46, 47 games, maybe get close to 50 because, I mean, I think that's what it is. They've got Horford. I think that Paul Millsup's a really good player. I like all the players that are added. They're, they're going to, there's no reason to think that that team's not going to be what it was. I mean, and, and, and they're going to be there. I don't think Atlanta – and actually, I think they're in a better position than they were because they're more flexible now. And, they, and you know, I, I, I don't think Atlanta's going to be blowing it up. So, I mean, I think <coughs> – I trust that John Hollinger's going to make the right move which is kind of a weird thing to say, but I mean, I think that, you know, we, we, we gave him a lot of crap for Purr, but, but I don't, he doesn't use Purr for, for the stuff that he does. I think he, he uses, he, 
he uses more advanced stuff or, or he's moved on from that. I almost kind of think that it's he uses per to kind of see what people think players should be valued, and that's one of kind of what it gives you. But he's looking for he's going to get a shooter, and if they do, they they can they can make some damage. I mean, right now I have them as a flawed four seed. You know, I think they can they can they can be taken out of the game and they can be beat, but but they're move away. Well, and and as you talked about the quality of the Central Division, having two intensely beatable teams in Orlando and Charlotte should help kind of buffer them in terms of some some just challenges because they'll have two teams in their division that they should just wallop. Yeah, we're talking about Atlanta now, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, yeah, I mean Atlanta. Atlanta's a good team. Atlanta. You know, uh, we they, ha- they it's interesting to see what happens with some of the young players they have on the rosters, and you know we'll see where it goes. I mean, a- again, I don't think they're they're not a top tier player. They're not a top tier team yet. I mean, they're you know they're they're also kind of a, a team that comes up in like trade discussions. So you know we'll see we'll see what Atlanta actually is as the season goes on. Beyond the numbers, what teams are you most excited as a fan of basketball to watch this year? You know, I mean, again, I'm a Celtics fan. I, I think it's going to be a really interesting year. It, it reminds me a little bit of the year before uh, they got KG and, 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 and Ray, and in that it's a young team. And I had fun watching that young team. I remember that when they had Rondo and they had Al Jefferson. I think it's going to be interesting. I think they have some interesting pieces. I think uh, I'm curious to see what actually Denver is with Brian Shaw. Uh, uh, I'm interested to see what what it kind of looks like. I think the Lakers are going to be terrible, but incredibly entertaining to watch. Uh, I mentioned the, I mentioned the, uh, I'm going to be glad to see that Derek Rose be back. I think that's any basketball fan should be glad to see that. Uh, I mentioned Odin. I really want to see what, what Miami has with Odin. Uh, you know, that, I said that it makes me happy, sad, happy that he's back and sad because if he's any good, then, 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 you know, I don't know how you're going to beat that team. So I mean, there's there's a lot of really interesting kind of uh, storylines. I mean, I, I, it's going to be weird to watch the Nets with uh, KG and Pierce, but uh, you know, I'll, I'll still be watching too. Uh, we haven't talked about the Warriors at all. You want to talk a little bit about the Warriors? We can talk about the Warriors. Uh, I I think that the Warriors are going to be an interesting team because the challenge with them to me is maximizing the the what they have. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the key for that team because. The underrated fact is that yeah they they got they got Iggy but they were already okay at that spot right so it it's not something it's not like if they gotten Dwight Dwight would have been a better boost for them I think getting Iggy gives him some more boost I, I worry about that team that David Lee is older and he's shown uh, he's shown to be injury prone and he's had some bad season after getting hurt I think Bogut is injury prone I think Curry's injury prone. And and my model kind of looks at that team and kind of kind of throws up its hand in the air and says like you know injury risk, and they're they're a big candidate for regression. I mean I think this can be a good team, but they're a big candidate for regression just because of that. And and given the tough West, I mean I do think that you know this might be a team that that might be fighting with like Dallas and Denver for the ace, you know the six seven eight slot, and rather than being in the top, just because I mean it's so fragile of a team. Now if you can get a full season from Bogut, then we're talking a completely different language, but you know, I think, you know, what are the biggest odds of getting a full season out of Andrew Bogut right now? And to me, the the biggest thing with the Warriors is in kind of a ceiling floor situation is that they have depth at the positions that their most fragile players do not play. And that's a very interesting situation because if Curry gets hurt, you're replacing him with Tony Douglas. Mm. And presumably, I guess you'll have Iggy play some defensive Ooh. one and slide over, which would be interesting. <sighs> 
that's not, that's that's not good. And I think, and again, the other thing is like as much as people like Harrison Barnes, uh, well, he he hasn't gotten it done consistently, right? He, he's gotten it done in stretches and, and in particular specific situations. I don't know how that translates over the course of 82 games. I was uh, I was actually the you know the the news broke on the on the Bogut extension and and I was kind of very lukewarm on it because I really would like to see this team go 42 games and then kind of make any decisions about extending contracts and what do I want to do in the long term because as much as I like the playoff run if I'm the GM responsibly I have to say let, let let me see what I have actually you know in the heat of a regular season and see how this actually plays out over the course of a year I like their coach I mean I like the, some of the individual players. I I I'm I don't know that I'm kind of happy with how sustainable I think the uh, the level of effort is. Do you, you kind of get what I'm saying there? Yeah. What I what I think of with Harrison Barnes is actually similar to what I said about Hibbert in the sense that yeah. he's a very talented player and his flashes are great. And the question is, how often can you put the flashes together? How frequently can they come? If they come more frequently, then he becomes this really interesting difference-making but not ball-dominant player. But if those flashes stay as far apart as they were, then you're looking at a guy who is kind of an interesting support player but not a linchpin in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, which puts us in a bad bad position. Now, you you mentioned flashes of greatness. Um, Another player that I think could be interesting is, uh, and this guy I own in multiple fantasy leagues, so I'm kind of hoping he's good, is Boogie. I've had Boogie on my bench in a couple fantasy teams for like, four, five, six teams, and it looks like he's finally going to, you know, stop being a knucklehead. And actually, now that he has a real ownership group and a real coach around them, you know, it, he, he might actually get better. Now, we say this about Boogie Cousins all the time. I mean, I think there, there isn't a player that's more beloved by scouts because he has all these intangibles, but he just never put it together on the court. He does have all the physical gifts. He has all the instincts. He just, for whatever reason, is a complete knucklehead and, and has never actually gotten it done. It's like, you know, it's... I'm kind of hoping it goes the other way. I mean, I think that 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 if he's good, that makes Sacramento, uh, if not a contender, it makes him more of a team that you, you you can't just pencil in a W every time you go to Sacramento. Yeah, Sacramento to me is one of those teams that have they have two guys. They have Cousins and they have Macklemore to me that are guys that if yeah. you can eliminate their weaknesses, they would be such amazingly strong players. And so the question is maybe not even eliminate, but just minimize. And Boogie, I, I remember Lowe wrote a piece, and then I wrote kind of a, not necessarily a response, but a continuation on just how he's such an insanely talented player, and the things that he does well are incredibly valuable things, as long as he doesn't take away from those by taking terrible shots. Well, and again, I think this, this goes back to, I've had the, the same thing with Melo, where like people say, oh, he has this wonderful shot, and he, he's, he makes a, a fantastic rate of contested jumpers, and I'm like, the problem is he's taking the contested jumpers, right? So it's 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 that I mean like the mental game is really important and this is where people kind of get messed up. So, so it's the whole it gets the whole for example the Russell Westbrook argument right. It's like nobody's arguing that Russell Westbrook is not really talented or really athletic. What we're arguing is like there's there's really no reason why if you're playing on a team with Kevin Durant you're taking more shots than Kevin Durant. There isn't anybody in the league who should be playing with Kevin Durant and taking more shots than Kevin Durant. But Russell Westbrook is taking more shots than Kevin Durant. Right, so it, it that's inherently something that is broken within his thought process. He just says, you know, just give me the ball, I'll take the shot. He's he doesn't have that kind of you know Chris Paul mentality where Chris Paul's driving in the lane and Chris Paul doesn't care to get a shot. Chris Paul just wants the most efficient shot to go in. Right, so it doesn't matter who's taking it. He's going to pass to whoever believes is the most efficient shot. So that's 
he has that that sense of the game that some players don't have, and I think that's where you kind of get messed up, and that's where you kind of people get confused. So he he looks like oh he looks like he must be a great ball player. Well, but he is what he actually does on the court doesn't actually match how he looks like. Another interesting young guy that we haven't talked about is John Wall, who I'm as somebody who covered the Wizards a lot last year because I was living in Washington. I my first the first game I covered was his first game back in the starting lineup. It's going to be fascinating to see. We don't know if he'll get a full season, but what he can do with with what they have right now. Are you familiar with like the first big piece I ever wrote? So like I remember the writing this. I wrote a piece about how the uh, I believe it was the 2010 Wizards could be the worst team ever, and I wrote this on my blog. And I remember writing this. I was I was in my mother-in-law's house. I wrote it. We were staying over because we we travel over uh, and stay when we when we visit the other side of the island. And I wrote this piece on a Friday. I, you know, I, I put it in. I, I posted it. I go to bed. I, I get back the other day, and I've got a million hits on my blog. And it was, you know, uh, Ted Leonsis that actually linked and responded to my piece directly and just called me out. I was like, what the hell? And and you know, I mean, I think one of the keys was like I, I said that like you know you shouldn't take my advice like they shouldn't have taken John Wall because I said he's so young, right? When you take point guards that are this young are not going to be productive over the rookie contract, or they're not going to be worth the rookie contract. And, and actually, I would argue that, I mean, that team was terrible, and, and, and Wall really hasn't been worth this rookie contract. I mean, they basically they basically leased him for four years for the right to sign into a contract now, right? And and that's a whole other problem. I think they, they, they kind of paid him what they think he's going to be, not what he actually is, and I think that's, that's a mistake teams made. Now, I think Wall has a lot of talent. I think Wall is a very athletic player, and he's been okay. He hasn't been great. He hasn't been able to stay on the court. Now, could he be a next-level player? Sure, yeah, I think he can do that. But the problem is, you know, when you're running these teams and you're paying for what the guy could be, well, that's a real problem. Now, I think, you know, smartly they've they've kind of done the They've gone ahead and, and they traded Okafor for Gertat to actually still have a shot. But, you know, somebody was asking me what the projection is. For that team, the projection, and I still have to write this piece, but they, right now I've got him at exactly 41 wins after the trade. And with the caveat that it's 41 wins, if everybody plays like they played before, if one of their guys, be it Wall, be it, uh, can't believe I'm blank, it's late, so I'm blanking on their... Uh, Bradley Beal. Uh, Bradley Beal or Otto Porter uh, takes a leap to the next level. Uh, Nene goes back to you know his 2010 form. Well, if any of these things happen and, and another guy takes up a step and takes it up a notch, then this is a team that could be a 46-47 serious kind of contend there for maybe the fourth seed or maybe, you know, the five four in the in, in, in the uh in the uh in the East, right? So it's but it's something has to change. One of these guys has to take his next step. I think does Wall have it in him? Yeah, I think he has the talent. I just he hasn't proven it. Right. So I I mean I as I said, when he came out as a rookie, I mean I don't think it could he was not a great choice of the number one pick just because he wasn't really that good and he hasn't been that great. You know, people keep saying, oh, he's going to get that level. We, you know, again, I, I argue about results on the court. We haven't seen it yet, right? You know, if we see it, then if, if, if John Wall hits that next level, then the Wizards are going to be a 45, 46, 47 win team. Awesome. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time. It's been, been an absolute pleasure. Is there anything else that you want to talk about? No, I mean, I think I'll just, uh, and, and I mentioned, I'll plug our, our new website, uh, boxcargeeks.com. You know, we're trying to put together as, as, as a nice uh, visual format for all the data, and we're trying to automate all this stuff, and, and more good stuff is coming. We're, we've got everything in the works. 
and as as Arturo said, they're writing they're writing prediction pieces for every single team. They've been excellent reads so far. A good summary of what happened last season, as well as a prediction of what's going to happen this season. And they're going they're going kind of through the list. They're going through the list with you can see the blank spots on their preview page, which makes it kind of fun to to guess. Though you got some insight in in this conversation. Yeah, I think you, you got some you got some spoilers for the Wizards and to the Warriors and some of the other teams. So yeah, no, I think that that's. And again, we we want we want we want readers and we want feedback. We, we're trying to build something for you guys because I think our, I think our key operational principle is like what, what's out there right now for basketball fans isn't as good as it should be, and that's what we're trying to fix. And that's that's a great goal, and that's why you're one of my favorite people to read. Hearty thanks to both of my guests, Jonathan Charks of RealGM.com and Arturo Galetti from BoxScoreGeeks.com, for their valuable insight into the league as it's coming up for the season. They're both excellent writers. You should read their stuff on their sites. And thank you so much for listening. This is a collaborative process. This is the first time I've done a podcast. And so I'm open to any and all insight and information because I want to make this as good of an experience as possible. There are a lot of excellent basketball pieces out there, both written and podcasts. And the goal of this is to be a different standalone thing that respects the excellent contributions of things like the Basketball Jones, now the Starters, Disciples of Clyde, and everything else. And so, want to make it its own thing, but want to make it worth your time, and hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed making it. At this point, the best way to get comments to to make the show better would be to send them to me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Danny LaRue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. You could also email Daniel dot larue at realgm.com i read both regularly and would love your insight the goal is to make the show as excellent as it can be thanks again for listening and make it a great day a napa guy knows not to judge a man by his car's multicolor paint job or absence of modern gadgetry who cares if it's technically old enough to vote and the windows are powered by the strength of your left arm your monthly payment is zero and it'll stay that way because with over 400,000 parts and a little Napa know-how, you can keep anything on the road. She may not be pretty, but she's all yours. That's Napa know-how.